So Revelation chapter 14, starting in verse 6, reading through verse 13. We see here, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. And another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image, and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Then I heard a loud voice, from, I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works. Follow them. So here we are, the penultimate or the next to last lesson in the third cycle of visions that we see in Revelation chapter 4, going through Revelation chapter 22. We see these cycles, these, uh, there are seven cycles of visions. This is the third one. And if you recall what we've been saying and what we've been calling these visions, the third cycle. So the first one was the seals. The second one was the trumpets. The third cycle is what we call these symbolic histories again because they give us the whole history, the whole scope of history of the church age through these symbolic people or these symbolic personages that you see here. In Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 through 6, we were introduced to the woman, the dragon, and the child. Of course, the woman was... Israel or the people of God. Uh, the church could also be considered the woman as well. The dragon is devil or Satan. And the child? Christ. Okay. Then in Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 through 12, shows us this war in heaven as the child who was born of the woman and as the, the dragon was sitting there waiting waiting to to pounce on the child as as the child was born, we saw that the child was immediately caught up to heaven and is now has ascended to his throne in heaven. And then this war breaks out in heaven and the dragon is then cast to earth. And his time is short. That's what we see. So he's, he's now been cast out of heaven. His time is short. He is no longer allowed to accuse the brethren before the throne of God. His time is short. And he's, that's why he is anxious and angry and lashes out and tries to hunt down the woman and her offspring. But he's not able to get to them. 
So then he calls in some help. So then we see in Revelation 13, two more of these uh, symbolic personages. So the woman, the dragon, the child, and then we see the two beasts that the dragon summons and empowers to aid him in his task of destroying and tormenting the people of God. So the first beast from the sea, do you remember what he represents? Evil world governments, right? He represents the amalgam or the combination of evil world governments. He, the Antichrist, the symbol of everything that is anti-Christian in the, in the world governments that persecutes the church. And the reason we said that is because if you look at the way they describe the first beast, he is, he is described, first of all, he has seven heads and ten horns, just like the dragon does. But he also resembles a lion, he resembles a leopard, and he resembles a bear. And we look back at Daniel chapter 7 and saw those visions in which Daniel has visions of four beasts rising up out of the sea. He sees a lion, he sees a bear, he sees a leopard, and then a hideous fourth beast that is, you know, you know and those are successive world kingdoms as they come into to being. So this first beast in Revelation 13 is sort of a combination of all of that. Then the second beast comes up out of the earth. This is the false prophet or evil world religion uh, that tempts people, the people who dwell on the earth, to worship and draws all the attention of the people on the earth to worship the first beast. So to worship the state or to worship uh, evil world governments. Then finally, last week in Revelation 14 verses 1 through 5, we saw the lamb, that's Jesus, and we saw the 144,000, which is the church, the church militant, uh, drawing from that imagery that we saw in Revelation chapter 7, in which the 144,000 are lined up in ranks. They are lined up as Israel would have lined up in, according to their tribes, lined up for war. So the church militant, that's basically just a way of saying the church here on earth that struggles in spiritual warfare against the uh, the, the works of the devil and, 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 and all these other things. So the church militant, the complete number of the people of God here on earth, even though they're seen in, this, in heaven, in this vision here we saw last time, they're seen in heaven worshiping before the throne. So the idea here is that the church, even though they exist on earth, really their reality is that they, they are in heaven. We are even now, as Ephesians says, we are with Christ in the heavenly places, even though we are still here on earth. And again, all of these symbolic figures depict realities in the world that we see now in world history, but they're sort of realities from a heavenly perspective. And that's how John perceives these realities. He perceives them as a woman, as a child, as a dragon, as two hideous beasts, and as a group of 144,000 people. So everything that happens in the world really just reflects this great uh, spiritual warfare between the dragon uh, and his antichrist government and the false prophet on the one hand and then the lamb and the 144,000 on the other hand. And then the things that we see happening in the world around us today in world history aren't really the main story, right? The main story is the spiritual warfare that's going on that reflects true reality. It just manifests itself in different ways throughout human history. I mean, we see the rise and fall of world empires all the time. But really, it's just 
another manifestation of the beast. Every time a, an evil world power comes up, it's another manifestation of the beast. For the people in John's day, when Revelation was written, for them, the beast would have been the Roman Empire. And Nero would have been the Antichrist figure. And that's perfectly understandable because that's what was, that was the manifestation of the beast in John's day. But that's not the only, you know, there are some who view Revelation, that's all it is. It's all fulfilled in the days of John when he wrote it. If you remember all the way, way back in the beginning, that was the preterist view that says most of this has been fulfilled in the days of John. Uh, some of them even say that it was fulfilled before the temple fell in Jerusalem in AD 70. So they see, well, no, the beast is Nero and that's it. But we see it as Nero is a form of the beast. All these other world empires are also forms of the beast. I mean, in the time of the reformers, you know who the beast was? What's that? The cat, well, more specifically, the Pope. The Pope was the Antichrist. And if you look at some of the original confessional documents from, from the, you know, I think you could look at some older versions of the Westminster Confession, and it says that the Pope is the Antichrist. Because during those days, that's what they believed. You know, to them, the beastly power was the, Holy, the Roman Catholic Church and its influence in world governments. Because in the time, during those days, the Roman Catholic Church was sort of, in a sense, over the governments. So they, they would have seen the Roman Catholic Church and the Pope as the Antichrist. And then if you were to fast forward to World War II, who do you, who do you think would have been a manifestation of the beast in World War II? Hitler, right. Okay, so there are these beastly versions all throughout world history. And then, but all this time, you've got, you know, the, this manifestation of the beast in, in world governments and world history. And it's the true reality is the spiritual warfare that's behind all of that. So that brings us now to the passage we're looking here before us in verses 6 through 13 of chapter 14. And after receiving a vision of the Lamb and the 144,000 worshiping God and singing news, a new song of salvation, John sees another vision. And of course, you get that typical language here. Then I saw, that means a transition to a new vision. And this vision is of three angels. Three angels in heaven flying in the skies and they're making these pronouncements and they're proclaiming a message to those who dwell on the earth. Okay, now if you remember, that's code word for what? Those who dwell on the earth are, are who? Unbelievers, because the believers are always seen in heaven. Even though they may not be physically on earth, unbel believers are always pictured as in heaven. Again, the 144,000, they are before the throne of God, singing a new song of salvation. Those who dwell on the earth are unbelievers. They are the ones here, the wicked, those who have received the mark. So while the saints are are with of the Lamb are seen singing new songs in heaven. The unbelievers are hearing a message here of warning and judgment from these three angels. So as I as you can look at your handout, I kind of broke it down into each of the three angels. Right, you got first angel, second angel, third angel, and then there's a little uh, sort of uh, postscript with the the perseverance of the saints. So the first angel has a message, and his message is to repent. We see this in verses 6 and 7. So John says, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. 
And this gospel, this proclamation says with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. Again, we see that, you know, I mentioned that phrase, then I saw, which indicates a new series of visions here. And John sees these three angels making three proclamations, the first of which we just read. And the first thing to note is that phrase there, the midst of heaven. Okay, the midst of heaven. And depending on which translation you have, if you have an ESV, does it say directly overhead? Okay. Uh, Christian Standard Bible says high overhead. NIV says midair. Uh, New American Standard says midheaven. It, basically, it's if you were to look up at the, the highest point in the sky where the sun would be at its zenith, that's what this phrase means. So the angel is there. Basically, it just means everyone should be able to see this angel. He is in the midst of the sky, at the highest point of the sky. He is completely visible, maximum visibility to all people who dwell on the earth. And this angel here possesses an everlasting or an internal gospel that he is preaching. And the content of this gospel is found in verse 7. But his audience, again, the gospel is being preached to those who dwell on the earth, unbelievers. So before we get to the content, I'm going to focus on the imagery of this angel flying directly overhead, proclaiming the everlasting gospel. Now, again, like everything else we've been looking at in the book of Revelation, this is what? It's symbolic, right? It's a vision. John, this is, John is just describing what he is seeing in these visions. So we shouldn't take this as a woodenly literal way of saying that in reality, at some point in the near future or the far future, we are literally going to see an angel flying overhead proclaiming this message. This is what John is seeing in a vision. And the reality behind this image is that those who dwell on the earth will have no excuse. They will have no excuse because they are hearing this message, this everlasting message of the gospel being proclaimed. Because an angel flying overhead in the very highest point in the sky in mid heaven proclaiming an everlasting gospel means to suggest that there is. No place on earth that hasn't heard this message. Okay, there's going to be no place. You're not going to be able to say, well, I was hiding in a cave somewhere or I was under a rock somewhere. No, you have heard this message because it is being proclaimed by an angel with a loud voice high overhead. Now, again, the content of that message is found in verse seven, where we see again Um, Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. Now, what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear that that is the content of the everlasting gospel? I know, the first thing that came to my mind was I thought the gospel was believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Right. Isn't that what we teach that the gospel is that the gospel is the story of the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Believe on that. Believe that he 
lived, that he lived a perfect life, that he died for your sins and was raised again for your justification, and you will be saved. I thought that was the gospel message. It is the gospel message. But here, the gospel message to these people is, well, first of all, what is man's first and original sin? What did Adam do in the garden? Or what did he fail to do in the garden, I should say? What's that? He failed to obey, right? Basically, he failed to fear God and to give him glory, right? Which is what this message is being proclaimed. Fear God, give him glory, and worship him. That's exactly what Adam didn't do in the garden when he disobeyed the commandment. He didn't fear God, he didn't give him glory, and he didn't worship him. He gave in to the lie, the deception of Satan that says, you will be like God if you eat this fruit. And he's like, that's a good idea. I think I'd like to be God. (laughs) You know, if you remember from the lesson this morning, right? You know, I mean, Eve was tempted to basically focus on what she wasn't getting and to miss the forest of everything that she had. I mean, God said, you have everything in the garden except this one tree. And Satan says, why don't you focus on that tree? Why isn't God letting you eat from that tree? It's like, why isn't God letting me eat from that tree? That's not fair. We should have every tree. Now I want that tree even more. That's kind of, you know, anybody who has kids or grandkids knows, right? If you, if you say no to a kid, what's going to happen? The kid's going to want it all the more, right? If you tell your kids, you know, they're playing in the basement or they're playing out in the backyard and you go out and you say, kids, I'm going to go to the grocery store. I'm going to be gone for 10 minutes. I just made some cookies. Don't touch the cookies because I, they're, they're, they're for dessert. Don't touch the cookies. Now, you may be playing out in the backyard. You probably won't even thinking of cookies until she said, don't touch the cookies because I'm saving them for dessert. So now, what's in your brain as a kid? Cookies. <laughs> and you're thinking, I want to get cookies now. That's, that's kind of what's happening here, right? You know. Don't eat the tree. You know, it's like, well, what is, why doesn't God want you to eat that tree? I don't know. Why doesn't God want me? Well, because he knows if you eat that, you're going to be like him and you're going to challenge him. He's like, well, but I like the idea of being God. So I'm going to eat from man's first and original sin was a failure to fear God and to give glory to him. Man's primary sin is he doesn't worship God. He doesn't worship God. Think of it this way. Paul opens the main body of his letter to the Romans. Uh, you can turn there if you'd like. Keep your finger in Revelation. But turn to Romans chapter 1. Because Romans chapter 1 is, as we, if you remember when we were going through that on Sunday mornings, Romans chapter 1 is an exposition of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it starts off with that great passage in Romans 1 where he gets to the meat of the letter in verse 16 of chapter 1. And Paul here says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So here, that's the theme statement of Romans. And he says, this is going to be about the gospel. And the gospel 
is a revelation. It is an it is a it is a unveiling. It is a revealing. To use the word that I mean, it's the same word that is used for the Book of Revelation. Is an apocalypse. It's an unveiling of the righteousness of God. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God. And then he goes on in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed. So now he says, okay, I'm going to talk to you about the gospel. And then he breaks into God's wrath. The wrath of God is revealed against, uh, from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest to them. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened, Professing to be wise, they became fools. That sounds like 1 Corinthians 3, right? Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things and then so on and so forth. And then it goes into how three times God gives them over. God gives them over. God gives them over. Now, if you notice as I was reading that, I emphasized a few words there. But it sounds like the eternal gospel that the angels are proclaiming, right? Fear God, give him glory and worship him. Because what does man not do? Man doesn't fear God. Man doesn't give him glory. Man doesn't worship him. Rather, sinful man without the gospel worships and serves the creation, not the creator. But here, these things are all manifest to them. They are clearly seen. So that they are without excuse. So the gospel, in a sense, that's being proclaimed is just, and you could say in one way, is all of creation, which is before us, is proclaiming the existence of God, that he is here, that he is a creator, that he is to be feared, that he is to be worshipped, and he is to be glorified. So God's wrath is being revealed from heaven because mankind, in a sense, suppresses that truth and unrighteousness. And the truth that is being suppressed is that God is clearly manifest in creation and that mankind refuses to worship him or give glory to him. Psalm 19.1 says what? The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows forth his handiwork. I, it's, there is an eternal gospel just being declared by looking up at the sky. Every night you see those stars, particularly on these clear Nebraska nights when it's so, the sky is so crisp and clear and you can see a bajillion zillion stars in the sky. All of those stars declaring the glory of God, showing forth his handiwork. And those who dwell on the earth refuse to acknowledge this eternal gospel. And they refuse to fear God, which is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And they refuse to fear God, they refuse to give him glory, and they refuse to worship him. As such, then, the hour, you can go back to Revelation 13, uh, 14, sorry. Uh, as, so as such, then, the hour of his judgment has come. And judgment here is imminent. It's soon, right? The, you know, what, what does it say there in verse 7? The hour of his judgment has come. 
Now, given all the symbolic numbers we've seen so far in Revelation, you know, 1,260 days, 42 months, um, you know, time, you know, an hour would, sounds like what? A very short period of time, right? Judgment is coming. It is imminent. It is imminent. Yet those who dwell on the earth will be caught unaware. In Luke 17, you can turn there if you'd like. Uh, Luke 17. In verse 20 of Luke 17, Jesus talks about the coming of the kingdom and what it will be like. And in verse 20 of chapter 17 of Luke's gospel, we see here, now when he, that is Jesus, was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus answered them and said, the kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, see here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. Then he said to the disciples, the days will come when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look here or look there. Do not go after them or follow them. For as the lightning that flashes out of one part under heaven shines to the other part under heaven, so also the Son of Man will be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And as it was in the days of Noah, so will be in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so, it will be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. So here Jesus is describing his coming in judgment, and it's going to be like in the days of Noah, and it's going to be like in the days of Lot. And the, thing, and the point that he gets across there is that judgment is coming. It's imminent, right? The hour of judgment has come, but the people are caught unawares. They're sleeping at the wheel. They're doing whatever it is they normally do. They eat, they drink, they marry, they give in marriage, they buy, they sell, they just carry about their business and all of a sudden the rain started falling or all of a sudden fire and brimstone came falling down from heaven. The eternal gospel has been declared and no one has not heard that message. And even though they have heard that message, it will do them no good. And they will remain oblivious until the coming day of God's judgment. So that's the first angel. You can turn back to Revelation 14 now again. The first angel proclaims the everlasting gospel to everybody, right? Every tribe, tongue, and nation dwelling on the earth, calling them to repent. Turn away from your wicked ways. Fear God. Worship him. Give him glory. And now the second angel also has a message in verse 8. And another angel followed saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. 
So the second angel's message is what? (laughs) Very simple. It's right there. Babylon has fallen. Babylon has fallen. It has fallen. Now, this is the first time in Revelation that we hear of Babylon. And it gets more attention later in chapter 17 and 18. But this language here of that we see in Revelation 14.8 echoes what the prophet Isaiah says when he actually pronounces a judgment on Babylon in the actual city of Babylon. In Isaiah 21 verse 9, he proclaims the fall of Babylon. In Isaiah 21 9, he says, And look, here comes a chariot of men with a pair of horsemen. Then he answered and said, Babylon has fallen, is fallen, and all the carved images of her gods he has broken to the ground. So just as God had pronounced a judgment on the actual city of Babylon back in the day of Isaiah, here we see the angel that is flying, the second angel in the heavens here flying, proclaiming a message that Babylon has fallen. Now, I may have mentioned this before in previous contexts, but biblically speaking, what does Babylon represent? Do you remember? What's that? The world system, right. Babylon, pretty much the entire political, economic, and religious kingdoms of the present world order. Babylon is representative of them. Babylon is the epitome of the Antichrist world. Now, do you remember when we see in the Bible the first time we see Babylon? It's kind of a trick question. Tower of Babel, exactly. It's not called Babylon then, but it's where Babylon would be. It's in the plains of Shinar, which is where Babylon eventually gets built. So we see Babylon, technically speaking, very early in the Bible in Genesis 11. So in Genesis 11 there, that's the story again of the Tower of Babel. And um, we see here, now, if you remember, what was, what was one of God's original commandments to Adam in the garden after he created him and, and gave him Eve and said, you two are now a couple. What was one of the commandments he said to them? Be fruitful, multiply, and disperse. And disperse right, spread throughout the earth. What were the people at the Tower of Babel doing? Not dispersing. <laughs> right? They weren't dispersing. That was the problem. So they had gathered. It says, now the whole earth had one language and one speech. This is uh, Genesis 11, verse 1. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Then they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, and they, would, and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Verse 5, But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language, and this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the earth. 
So here Babel is representative of the city of man, right? It was all the human race at the time was gathered in the plains of Shinar. And they said, let us build a tower to the heavens. So this is the city of man. And all of mankind's attempts to ascend, or as I like to say, to kind of storm the gates of heaven, right? They're like, let's build a tower up to heaven and let us... Let us ascend and make a name for ourselves. We'll storm the gates of heaven itself. Not that that's actually possible. (laughs) Okay. But, you know, when you're full of spit and vinegar like these people apparently were, you know, they think nothing's beyond them. We can do whatever we want. We're going to make a name for ourselves. So at Babel, the whole earth gathered together to build a city which would reach heaven itself. And then God judges Babel and judges the people there by confusing their languages. So here again, Babel again is this idea of the anti-God city of man. The first time you see it, it is attempt of mankind to ascend into heaven and essentially storm the gates of heaven. Now Babylon is also the place where the people of Israel were exiled, right? At least the people of Judah. The northern kingdom was exiled to Assyria. The southern kingdom, a little bit later, exiled to Babylon where they were in exile. So it is, Babylon is also commonly understood as the place of exile. When the sins of God's people reached essentially the end of God's patience, um, he gave them into the hand of Babylon as judgment. Again, we saw this in Daniel, right? God, in the third year of Jehoiakim's reign, God gave uh, Jehoiakim and Judah into the hand of Babylon. And I made sure to stress the point that as as I'm sure as good a commander as Nebuchadnezzar was and as smart of a tactician as he was, he would have had no success over the people of Judah unless God had given them into his hand. So, you know, this is the place of uh, exile. Babylon represents here, in the, particularly in the book of Daniel, again, anti-God, anti-Christ world uh, view in which Christians live in today as well. Babylon was the golden head of that great image that Nebuchadnezzar dreamed of in Daniel 2 and is the first of four great beastly empires that we see in Daniel chapter 7 that will exert power over all the earth. So again, and then Babylon here we see in Revelation is the representative, I should say the representative of the beast of Revelation 13, the first installment, if you will of the beast of Revelation 13 was Babylon. The first, you know, that golden head of that statue was Babylon. And he is the first uh, representation of that, I should say. When you get to the first century, the time of Jesus and the time of the apostles, Babylon is code word for Rome. Because Peter, at the end of one of his letters, says, the saints in Babylon greet you. Now, Peter was believed that he wrote from Rome when he wrote that letter. So he's using, you know, Babylon as code word for Rome. Again, that anti-God, anti-Christian way of thinking and that anti-God government. Again, another manifestation of the beast. Uh, Maybe even perhaps the most beastly of them all, the Roman Empire. But here we see the angel proclaiming that Babylon is fallen. God's judgment has come in the form of the destruction of Babylon, the great city that stands against God. As we saw earlier, uh, when judgment comes, the kingdoms of the world will then become the kingdoms of 
uh, God and of his Christ. We saw that earlier in Revelation 11. I believe it was when the seventh trumpet was blown in Revelation 11 at the end of that. We see when that seventh trumpet, which is uh, symbolic of the return of Christ, he says, now the kingdoms of this world have now become the kingdoms of God and of his Messiah. Back again to Daniel 2. If you remember that image of Daniel 2, when he, Nebuchadnezzar dreams of that statue, the, the four medals in the statue, what do we see comes out of nowhere and destroys that statue? A very small stone, right? A, a stone that was uncut by human hands. So no human hand had anything to do with this stone. The stone comes out, completely destroys the combined kingdoms of the world because it doesn't just hit the clay feet. It hits the clay feet, the entire statue shatters, and then is turned into dust that says, you know, is blown away as the chaff is blown away as you're winnowing. So here again, the destruction of Babylon, the destruction of everything that is tied to this world. And the reason for her destruction here is made very clear in verse 8. She has made all the nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Now, just peeking ahead a little bit, we're not going to look there, but just giving you a little preview, right? You know, like whenever you see the movies, you get a little bit of the trailer. I'm going to give you a little bit of a trailer preview. In Revelation 17, just a few chapters later, Babylon is described as a great harlot. Okay, now when you think of a harlot, (laughs) what do you think of? A woman of the night, a woman of ill repute, a woman who has a bad reputation, right? She's, she goes out and she seduces people. You know, think of how the opening chapters of Proverbs go where the, the father is coaching his son, son, avoid the adulterous woman, right? Because she's out there, she's out in the streets, luring you into her bedroom. She says, hey, you know, I just made my bed. I just put some perfume on my bed. My husband's away. Come and let us drink of our love and passion. He says, flee from that woman. <laughs> flee from those women, right? Don't go near them. So Babylon is described as a harlot. And it's evident here that she, that is Babylon, has made all the nations. How many of the nations? All of them, right? She has made all the nations drunk on the wine of her fornication. Now, fornication obviously could mean actual, literal, you know, sexual immorality, fornication, or adultery. But again, it probably refers to spiritual fornication, which is what? Spiritual, idolat- spiritual adultery. I just gave you the answer there. Spiritual adultery is, is, is what? It's idolatry. <laughs> just give you the answer. Just give me back the answer I gave you. Spiritual adultery is, is, is basically a way of talking about... Um, Idolatry. Um, again, uh, going to the, you know, the reference to the book of Hosea, where God tells Hosea, you need to marry a woman of, of whoredom, he says, and, and have children of whoredom. And then he says, that's what you, Israel, have been like to me. You know, I've been a good husband to you, but you go out and you play the whore all the time with all the gods. You know, it's like, you know, you, you say you pay, you know, you, you go to the temple and you offer sacrifices to me, but then at night you go and bow down before some silly statue that you've made out of wood or whatever. You're playing the whore in the sense that you are following and chasing after other gods. Often, um, 
Idolatry is pictured as a spiritual adultery. Also consider the contrast, if you remember last time when we looked at the 144,000, John sees them as um, uh, male virgins. They are virgins who are not defiled with women. Verse 4 of chapter 14. These are the ones who are not defiled with women, for they are virgins. And if you remember when we said this, like, well, we're not supposed to think that the church is made up of 144,000 virgin men. Okay, that's, that's not the picture of the church. The idea of the, is that they do not commit spiritual idolatry. They do not commit fornication in the sense that Babylon has made all the nations drunk with fornication. So in contrast to the church, who is chaste, who is described as a virgin, or as we will see later on, uh, the heavenly Jerusalem comes down as a bride, a chaste bride adorned for her husband. The contrast that is Babylon, who is the whore, the one who commits all kinds of uh, idolatries and adulteries and everything. So in contrast that we see here, Babylon as a woman who is um, who makes the nations drunk with fornication. And moreover, we know from chapter 13, those who dwell on the earth have been described as those who worship the beast. That's the fornication, right? They don't worship God, right? That's what the eternal gospel says that they should do. Worship God, fear him, give him glory. But they don't do that because they are the ones who what? They are the ones who worship the beast. They are the ones who have received the mark of the beast on on their right hands and on their foreheads. So that is the description here of Babylon is fallen. That's the message of the second angel. So your your city has been destroyed. Your, Your world system has been destroyed. Repent, because your world system has been destroyed. And then secondly, or thirdly, I should say, in verses 9 through 11, we see the third angel who now pronounces judgment. So as the second angel announces the destruction of Babylon, the great city of man, now the third angel enters the scene, as we see in verse 9 and then the first half of verse 10. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image, and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. So this is a dire warning, a dire warning of coming judgment. And again, the judgment is coming against whom? What's that? Unbelievers, right? Those who worship the beast, those who dwell on the earth, those who have received the mark of the beast on the hand and on the forehead. In verse 8, we saw why Babylon will be destroyed because she made all the nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And here, the fornication, as we also saw, symbolic of idolatry or spiritual adultery. And that's what we see here in verses 9 and 10. The judgment comes on all those who worship the beast instead of worshiping God, who have received the mark of the beast instead of being sealed on the, by, by God on the forehead. So it all comes together now, these angelic proclamations, all three of them. It is a call for all nations, for all tribes, for all tongues to repent of their sin and to turn to worship, to turn to God and worship and glorify him. 
Failure to do so results in the destruction of the evil world order, Babylon, for its idolatry. And finally, those who have engaged in beast worship and have taken his mark will face judgment. That's when you take the three combined messages of the angels. That's what we're seeing. It's, it's the impending judgment of you know, those who are left on the earth who have not who have, who have uh, gone into beast worship and all these things. It's a call to repent. It's a call to say that your world system has been destroyed and that you will face judgment if, unless you turn to worship God. And we see here that this judgment uh, is depicted as a, as, a, as a strong cup of wine, right? The wine of God's wrath which is then poured out on those who worship the beast. So this wine is poured out as, as God pours his, his um, wrath upon mankind. This imagery, of course, is taken from other places in Scripture. Uh, Psalm 75, 8, we see, for, the hand of the Lord, for in the hand of the Lord is a cup, and the wine is red, it is fully mixed, and he pours it out. Surely the dregs shall all the wicked of the earth drain and drink down. Now, I haven't, you know, actually had the kind of wine they're talking about here in which there are actually dregs in the bottom of the wine cup. But as I understand, that's not the part you want to drink. (laughs) But meaning that when you have drunk full, you have drunk it all, even down to the stuff you wouldn't normally drink. Okay, maybe... Anybody here maybe brews their own beer? Sometimes you know you can't pour the whole bottle into the cup because you've got the, the yeast or whatever that's still there. You don't want to drink that part. But that's the picture here is you're drinking the full cup. You're drinking it down, even down to the dregs. We mentioned this a little bit in the sermon this morning, but again, think of how the Lord Jesus Christ Himself prayed in the garden. Right? He's in the garden. It's the, you know, the eve before he's about to be betrayed. And he's in the garden praying to God. He tells his disciples, you know, pray with me. And he goes off a distance and he prays. And what does he pray to, to God? Let this cup pass. This cup of God's wrath. Right? Jesus had to drink the cup of God's wrath down to the dregs for us. Oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass. For me, nevertheless, not as you will, but I will. Now, just as a side note, how many people here are happy that Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath so that we don't have to, right? Amen to that one, right? <laughs> I'm glad he did. You know, I'm not, I'm not glad that he suffered that way, but I'm glad that he did so so that I don't have to drink that cup. The problem is if you don't let Jesus drink that cup, you're going to drink that cup. And that's what we see here. This cup now is being passed on to the world that's going to be poured out here. So Jesus here, of course, back to the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew 26, expressing the dread, right, and the sorrow of his impending date with the cross. I mean, I can't imagine what that would be like knowing where you're going, okay? Knowing that you're going to go to the cross. And, you, and, it, and of all the things, you know, of course, you know what, Mel Gibson made that movie 15 or so years ago, The Passion of the Christ, and they focused on how much he was beaten, how much he was physically suffered and the nails. And you know what? That was nothing compared to the wrath of God that he suffered. 
They pick, they, they focus on all the physical pain. That was nothing compared to being forsaken, right? What does Jesus cry out on the cross? My God, my God, why have you for, it's the first, it's the only time Jesus refers to God, not as his father, because God had to turn his face from him. God in his judgment had to turn away from his very own son because he cannot bear to look at him. That was probably the most ugly Jesus ever looked to God because he was full of our own sin. He bore our sin, right? Second Corinthians five says he became sin for us who knew no sin so that we could be the righteousness of God in him. Our sin was put on him and he probably looked this, you know, just disgusting to God. Habakkuk says God cannot, his, his eyes are too pure to look on any evil. And so he had to turn his heart, his, his, his eyes away from his very own son as he bore that wrath. That was the worst punishment. Not the nails through the wrists or the hands, depending on what you believe on that regard. Not the nails through the feet. Yeah. No, no. And I watched that movie, and they, all they focused on was how, you know, the, the, the lashes of the whip and this, that, and the other thing. It's like, that is a fraction of what he suffered on the cross. Again, the, pain would, the physical pain was nothing compared to being forsaken by God. So again, praise God that Jesus drank that cup all the way to the dregs and took the wrath of God for us. But here, the angel, this third angel, proclaims that the wrath of God will be poured out full strength. That's terrifying. (laughs) That's terrifying. The wrath of God poured out full strength on those who dwell on the earth. And we'll see this full wrath of God poured out in coming weeks when we look at the bowl judgments. Because there, again, you've got that imagery of a bowl filled with the wrath of God and these seven bowls. Again, seven being number of completion, a number of perfection. Each bowl, an angel pours out, full of the seven plagues upon the earth, the wrath of God being poured out against mankind. And just a glimpse again, you can see in Revelation 16, 19, during the pouring of the seventh bowl, uh, just a few verses before that, then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, it is done. Now, again, and I just love the way the Bible sort of, you know, you see these connections, right? What did Jesus say on the cross? It is finished because the full wrath of God for our sins was poured out on him. Here, when the seventh bowl is poured out, a voice from heaven declares, it is done. It is complete. The wrath of God has been fully poured out on the earth. And then in verse 19, Now the great city, which was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon, there's Babylon again, was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Here, that cup of wine containing the fierceness of the wrath of God poured out. And when God's wrath is poured out, we see the results. The last half of verse 10 going into verse 11. So here, um, so if anyone worships the beast in his image, I'm just reading ahead. 
back up again. He himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He, so the one drinking the wrath of God, shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. So, all those who worshiped the beast and received his mark will face eternal judgment. And it will not be pleasant. <laughs> it will not be pleasant. They are tormented day and night. They are tormented with fire and brimstone. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night. And they will be tormented, interestingly enough, in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. Now, it's interesting because I've heard this Maybe you've heard this too. I've heard this explained that hell, uh, many think hell or eternal judgment will be a place where God is not present, right? Hell is the absence of God. Hell is where God is not. To which now I reply, if only that were the case. (laughs) If only that were the case. Because we see here, the wicked who drink and drain down the dregs of the wrath of God are tormented in the presence of the Lamb. The very opposite is true. God is very much present in hell. Right? He is very much present in hell as a divine judge. He is there in judgment. The wicked will be tormented in the presence of the Lamb. It will be a wrathful Lamb. A wrathful God is there in hell overseeing the eternal punishment of the wicked. It's a very graphic description here as we see the smoke of their torment ascending forever and ever and they have no rest day or night. Clear rebuke again to several errors that kind of, you see, the idea of hell really freaks people out. Not so much that I don't want to go there. It freaks people out because it's like that doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem just, right? That God would, you know, eternity, Forever and ever? That doesn't seem right. So some people come up with some ways to sort of soft sell hell so you don't have to, so you don't have to show its, 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 its harshness here. One of them is an error called annihilationism. Has anybody heard of annihilationism? The idea of annihilationism basically is, depending on which annihilationist you, you read, that either the moment you're dead, you are snuffed out of existence, or maybe you might spend some time in hell and then you're snuffed out of existence. Okay? So the belief that the wicked will be judged but not eternally. After a while, God's wrath is satisfied and then the wicked will be annihilated. They will be basically as if they never existed. This passage here also puts the light of those who teach of any kind of second chance of repentance after a period of time in judgment. Anybody heard that one taught? That there's sort of like a second chance of repentance after you go into judgment? Um, This one doesn't say, this one goes against that as well. And in a way, indirectly perhaps, it also destroys the notion of purgatory. Even though purgatory technically, according to Roman Catholic Church, is for 
you know, believers, people of the church. They just haven't, you know, they haven't attained enough merit of their own in order to go to heaven. So they have to kind of go and purge off some of that sin before they're now meritorious or righteous enough to go to heaven. Um, judgment here is pictured as a never-ending descent. The language here really kind of mirrors the burnt sacrifices that you see in Jewish religion, right? You know, they, they burn the sacrifice in the altar and it's told that the smoke rises up to God and it's in a pleasing aroma to his nostrils. But here we see this never-ending burnt sacrifice in which the smoke rises eternally to God. A reminder of the wrath and judgment and justice of God. Now again, like I said, people try to soft sell the concept of hell here, the concept of eternal judgment. It, it, it seems as if here the punishment doesn't fit the crime, right? You are judged eternally in hell for sins that you commit temporally in, in the world, right? Some argue that eternal punishment for temporal sins seems extreme. You know, a very much case in which the punishment does not fit the crime. Consider the following. If I were to punish any one of you who sinned against me eternally, <laughs> if I could do that in some way, if I, if I could punish you eternally for any kind of sin that you commit against me, whether you lie against me, you do me wrong, whatever, if I could punish you eternally, that would be unjust. Right? If you kick me in the shins and I say, eternal punishment for you, that would be a little harsh, <laughs> to say the least. Okay, But if God were to eternally punish you for any sin committed against him, that would be just. That would be perfectly just. And the reason is because all sin is ultimately committed against whom? God, right? That's what David says in Psalm 51 as he repents of the sin that he committed with Bathsheba in the killing of, well, not only their adultery, but also in arranging for her husband to be slain. He says, all sin, you know, my sin is first and foremost against you, O Lord. I have sinned against you. And all sin is against God and against God who is infinitely holy, infinitely just, and infinitely righteous. And a sin against an infinitely glory, glorious and an infinitely majestic God would be worthy of eternal or infinite punishment. The punishment here is, in a sense, against whom you have committed the sin. God is eternally righteous. He is eternally glorious. He is, he is our creator. And every sin we commit is cosmic treason against him. And again, consider what the sin of those who dwell on the earth is. They fail. Remember, they fail to fear God. They fail to glorify him. They fail to worship him. That's the very, and that's the very reason why we were created, right? We were created to worship God. We were created to be in communion with God. We were created to have a relationship with God. Yet the sin that Adam committed in the garden sent man on a downward spiral of sin and debauchery to the point where he doesn't fear God, he doesn't worship him, doesn't glorify him. Now, finally, we see here in verses 12 and 13, the perseverance of the saints. And these two verses almost come as a word of comfort now to the saints 
who might be concerned of these warnings, right? In verses 12 and 13, we see, here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. The book of Hebrews, of course, is filled with warning passages. One of the the most controversial ones, in the sense that it's hard to understand because people have all kinds of weird interpretations of it, is Hebrews chapter 6, which seems to indicate that a true believer can fall away and apostatize. And that's not what Hebrews 6 is teaching, but it it gets confused that way. But there are plenty of parts in the book of Hebrews where the author says, Watch out, be on guard, don't, you know, don't go back. Now, the idea you have to understand is that Hebrews is, the reason it's called Hebrews is because it's written to Jewish people, Jewish Christians who are facing persecution for their faith and are tempted to go back to the old way of worshiping, to go back to the old covenant way of worshiping. And the writer of Hebrews says, don't, you can't, that's a dead end street. You can't go back there. You cannot turn away from Jesus and go back to the shadows of Old Testament worship. That's the whole point. Jesus came. The Old Testament worship has been fulfilled and satisfied. To go back to it is to go back to something that doesn't exist anymore, that has no purpose anymore, because Jesus is here. So he gives all these warnings. Don't, you know, don't lose heart. Keep you know, keep going. Don't turn back. Don't do these things. And you might think, well, that, okay, I've got to be careful now. I've got to worry. And here you hear these warnings here in Revelation 14. You know, fear God. You know, keep his commandments. We're glory. And it's like, oh. But then, you know, John says here, here is the patience. And again, if you have New King James, you might have a footnote there, which reads steadfastness or perseverance. I don't know what the ESV says. What does the ESV says? Endurance, okay. I haven't, I didn't, I don't remember exactly, but if I were a betting man, I would be betting that the word there in Greek is hupomone, which means to remain under. That's typically the word used in Greek to translate patience or endurance. You're, you are, think of an Olympic weightlifter, not, not, not the um, transgender ones that are competing in the women's section, just a typical, you know, big, burly American you know, Olympic weightlifter, or maybe if you're really thinking Burley, a Russian weightlifter, right? He, ugh, he gets the big weights up there, and he's probably holding like something of, you know, 700 or 900 pounds above his head. And he's like, oh, he's just holding it up there. This is, not, this is keeping you awake. <laughs> he's up there, oh, right? And he's, he remains under. He perseveres. He is steadfast under the weight of that. And then when he's done, he's like, oh, and he throws it off. And you hear the weights, you know, kind of do all those things. That's the idea, remaining under, right? You remain under, you, are, you persevere, you have patience. Here is the patience or the perseverance of the saints. Because again, going back to Hebrews, all those warning passages, one might say, I might say, but then in other places he says, but beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Right? You know, those who are false believers will turn away. But brothers and sisters, we are confident of better things for you. And that's what, how I see verses 12 and 13 here. 
John says, here is the perseverance of the saints. You are not going to fall under this judgment because here you, beloved, you are the perseverance of the saints. The saints of Jesus Christ will never fall into the judgment here because he or she has been sealed by God. That's the point of the whole idea of being sealed by God. The lamb has sealed you. He has put his mark on you. You will never finally or fully fall away from the faith because you have been sealed by God himself. Again, John 10, right? The good shepherd, you know, when he gives that speech in John 10, he says, no one can snatch my sheep out of my hand. No one can snatch my sheep out of my hand because I hold on to them. (laughs) Jesus holds on to it. He knows his sheep. He calls them by name. He's numbered them. He knows them. And he speaks and they follow him. He knows all of this. The saints are identified here as those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus Christ. So the warnings in Scripture ought not frighten true believers, but they should motivate us to further obedience and faith. And that's the point, right? You know, Paul many, many, many times says, you know, keep on, you know, make sure you... you, you know, forgetting what lies behind, I strain forward for the prize of the, of the goal, the upward prize of the call of Jesus Christ, or, you know, work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who works in you to, you know, to work and to will for his good pleasure. So in other words, there's this, you know, God is working in you, but don't just sit back and say, you know, the Christian life is not one where you can be like, oh, God will do it. I can just sit back in my easy chair And not worry about it. And no, no, no. Part of the idea of God preserving you in the faith is that you are working with fear and trembling to make your calling and election sure. Peter says that, right? Make your calling and election sure. So here, this this idea of the warning passage here, he says, he turns to the saints and says, you know, but, you know, you are the patience of the saints but continue, you know, this ought to motivate you, though, to further obedience and faith. And then in verse 13, we see here a benediction. It's the second benediction uh, in the book of Revelation. The first one we saw all the way in the beginning where it says, Blessed are those who read and hear this book. Here we see, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. This is the, what he's told to write. Now, it seems like a weird benediction, right? <laughs> if I were on a Sunday morning... To finish off the service and say, now look up saints of Jesus Christ and receive the benediction. Blessed are the dead who die. <laughs> You're like, okay, what's wrong with him? But, again, remember, death holds nothing over us, right? Those who die in the Lord, are, death is no longer to be feared. Death, again, think about Daniel in the fiery furnace. They went in even though they they believed God could save them, even if God wasn't going to save them, they were going to go in anyway because it was the right thing to do. They didn't fear the furnace because they feared God more. Exactly what these people here aren't fearing. They don't fear God. But the fiery furnace had no hold over them. Death has no hold over, over us because we are in Christ. Death has been conquered in Christ. So we have no fear of death. So blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. And they're blessed because what happens for those who die in the Lord? What happens to them? 
They go to heaven. Who's in heaven? Jesus is in heaven. <laughs> right? You know, every, every funeral we do, it's a sad moment because we are commemorating the dearly departed and we are trying to be comforting to those who are left behind. But if you are a believer in Christ, every funeral, that's a homecoming. <laughs> you are going home. <laughs> that's good news. <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean... I'm jealous in a, in a way because we have to live here. We have to continue living here in this veil of tears, which is also another thing because at the end, what does God say he'll do? He'll wipe every tear from your eyes, right? All those tears represent the pain of living in this world. Jesus wipes them with his, with his hand. He bends down, wipes those tears off your eyes. But blessed are those who die in the Lord because they go to be with the Lord because death for the believer means three things. And we see them here in this verse. A rest from our labors. Right? They, they may rest from their labors. Secondly, death means rewards for our works. Our works follow them. And then, of course, third, it's not mentioned here, but you are in the presence of Jesus. And again, note the contrast here. The saints get rest, right? When they die, they get rest from their labors. What's happening to the wicked? Just look a few verses back. They have no rest. Day and night, they have no rest. The, the, the righteous get rest. The wicked do not get rest. So that's our passage for tonight. This And it's... Like I said, we're coming to the end because the next passage, which we'll look at in two weeks, Lord willing, will be verses 14 through 20, which talks about the harvest at the end of the age. And that's the second coming of Jesus. But here, this passage is showing us that while the beasts rage, right? While the beast, the first beast rages and, 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 and makes war with the saints and the second beast is is marking those who are his and forcing others to worship the beast and torments those who do not take the mark of the beast. While that's all going on, we see the victory of the saints in heaven here. The 144,000 are singing their song, their new song of salvation. And then what we see here, these three angels are pronouncing the coming woes, the coming judgment that will come to those who are not sealed. Judgment is coming. An hour, the hour of judgment is here. It is coming. It's going to come like a thief in the night. It's going to be like the days of Noah, like the days of Lot. They're going to be conducting their normal business, and all of a sudden, you know, judgment comes and they're gone. They're not going to know what hit them. And then we'll see, we'll see the harvest uh, next time. But that's all I have for tonight.